come to the altar the father's arms are open wide forgiveness was bought with good morning church it's a joy to be with you this morning uh, to share god's word at the beginning of this lenten season and when i was 18 years old as a senior in high school i began to learn the guitar there was an immediate spark in this endeavor, an immediate love that caught like wildfire and shot through my life. Soon I was spending every available moment of the day practicing chord progressions, learning new songs. On a family vacation that year, I wasn't able to bring my guitar along, but I was able to bring a magazine that had guitar music in it. And I have a vivid memory of sitting in the hotel room, studying the music, and moving my hand up and down an imaginary guitar. I quickly progressed because my passion and my desire for the subject for learning the guitar was so insatiable and my friends and family were surprised. Several years earlier, I had a very different experience uh, with, a learning, with a learning endeavor as well, trying to learn the piano. My parents had encouraged me to pursue it. They had even gone so far as to get me in with lessons uh, with a very excellent teacher. But where my learning experience with guitar would be dynamic and fast progressing, my several year attempt with the piano was always pulling teeth. Trying to convince me to practice, trying to find music that I would want to learn. There were some bright spots along the way, but the teaching and learning were something of a battle until after a couple of years, I quit. Anyone who has ever taught a subject or a skill knows that progress in learning is most importantly a function of a student's desire to learn, their fundamental posture before the subject matter. As an early teen, when I closed my eyes and imagined myself on the big stage playing to thousands and rest assured I imagined just that, I was playing a guitar all the bands I listened to featured lead singers who played guitar, not piano. And so I was primed with the prerequisite for my successful learning experience in one instrument, but not the other. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, a season marked by repentance and self-reflection, not as ends in themselves, but as ends to growth. The word Lent actually means springtime, it is meant to be a time when new branches sprout, new roots find water, a season of learning and deepening under the instruction of our teacher, our rabbi, Jesus. Thinking about my two teenage learning experiences in the context of this Lenten season, a season defined by the posture of learning, the ways of God, I'm struck by how often our instruction under Jesus' teaching looks more often like piano than guitar. How often do we take up the posture of a student before God, asking him to teach us his ways, to instruct us in the way of life with no real desire to learn or to actually change? We're often like Augustine, who in looking back on his decades long battle with sexual sin, realized that while the prayer of his mouth was, Lord, make me chaste, the prayer of his heart was more like, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. This morning, I want to walk together through the prayer found in Psalm 25. In the Psalm, David's repeated prayer is that God would teach him his ways. In the entirety of the 150 Psalms in the Psalter, there are just 50 places where God is the subject of a verb of teaching. 
Six of those appear in Psalm 25 alone. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your paths and, and teach me. The petition is repeated over and over. The prayer gives us a picture of a heart that is fully prepared to be changed under this divine instruction. My prayer is that as we begin this Lenten season, we would seek to cultivate our hearts toward a similar posture. Let's learn together from David's prayer. The Psalm first challenges us in this way. If we are going to fruitfully sit under the instruction of our rabbi Jesus, we must sit before him with no pretense about our own sin. This prayer shows us that David is indeed facing, looking unflinchingly into the depth and prevalence of sin in his life. Studying the structure of the prayer uncovers this as the most central prerequisite if we are actually going to learn from God. In the familiar chiastic structure of much Hebrew poetry, the text builds to the center, like the summit of a mountain, and then descends over the same familiar ground. Both the ascent and descent, as I've already mentioned, are littered with David's entreaty that Yahweh would lead him, teach him, instruct him, make him to know his ways. But the center, the summit of the mountain is verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Pardon my guilt, for it is great. This is the summit of the psalm, naked and vulnerable, the confession of David's sin, the greatness of his waywardness and rebellion. Already in the psalm, we've had another confession of sin's pervasiveness. Verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. David's sin is not only a recent problem, but has stretched across his story since his youth. The posture towards sin here is stunningly stripped down, straightforward, offering no excuses. My sin is great. It has been great since my earliest days. Full stop. If we're going to seek to pray along with David in this season, and I think we should, we need to recognize out of the gate that in our fallen state, this is not our default posture toward our own sin. When Adam and Eve fall into sin, attempting to be the gods of their own life and displacing their creator, their immediate instinct is not to step into the light, to fess up. No, their immediate fallen instinct is to hide to hide from one another by clothing themselves, and to hide from the presence of God. This hiding is the exact opposite of the posture towards sin that we find in Psalm 25. If we're honest, we are most often in hiding, and rarely, if ever, standing in the light. What is so disturbing is that our hiding from God and hiding from others eventually becomes a hiding from ourselves. While hiding from God is laughably ineffective, who can escape his gaze? And hiding from others, while we like to pretend is going well, is actually also a total failure. Just ask those closest to you for a catalog of your vices. Hiding from ourselves is actually quite effective. It's a hole we can actually get lost in. 
With great vigilance, we cultivate the skill of self-justification and we twist our inner lives to hide from ourselves the ugly truths of our character. We make light of our great sins as little foibles, personality quirks, small weaknesses that are certainly understandable. I'm not covetous. I just really admire my boss's work ethic. And have you seen her house? It's so beautiful. I'm not a wrathful person. I just didn't sleep well last night and I was a bit short with my son. I'm not adulterous. It's just a little bit of harmless flirtation. We will do everything we can to keep the true picture of ourselves just off camera in our mind's eye. In the words of Jen Wozner of the band Y Oak, I am nothing without pretend. I know my thoughts, can't live with them. Trying to teach us his ways while we are in this state of hiding is truly a futile effort. In this posture, what is God's instruction to me but a bit of polishing on a car that's already quite clean or just adding some extra spice to an already delicious soup? In reality, when I come out of hiding and I'm honest about my sin, I know that the car needs rebuilding from the ground up and the soup needs entirely new ingredients. In the words of our prayer book's confession, apart from your grace, there is no health in us. When we are in this posture of honesty, the instruction of the Lord is suddenly transformed. It is no longer a nice to have, but an absolute necessity. We run to it like parched desert wanderers to water. We hear these notes of desperation in verse five. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. I wonder what it means for you to step into the light during this Lenten season, to discover that you need the Lord's instruction like you need the air you breathe. Maybe it seems too scary to own your own sin before God, before others, in your own heart, to name it, to admit without hedging, to say, I'm a covetous, wrathful, lustful sinner. If you recoil from coming out of hiding in this way, know that you are in the good company with every person who has ever lived. We need to see that this move of courageous vulnerability comes with a great promise in this psalm. That we will see the depth and greatness of God's character and love. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, they think they have only a little sin and believe in a little savior. It is all little together. But when you get a great sense of sin, you want a great savior and feel that if you do not have him, you will fall into a great destruction. The picture in Psalm 25 is certainly one of great sin, but also of a great savior. We're now at our second prerequisite for sitting fruitfully under the Lord's instruction. First, we must come out of hiding and face our sin. Second, we must know the depth of our teacher's love for us. It is only in knowing this love that we will have the confidence to continually step further into the light and receive his instruction fruitfully. Consider verses six and seven. Remember your mercy, O Lord, 
and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not my sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Notice that David's confession of sin is surrounded by the recognition of God's love, literally sandwiched between, calling upon God's mercy and steadfast love before recognizing his own sin and then calling on God's steadfast love and goodness after. The word picture here speaks of a divine love that holds David's recognition of his sin, that creates a space where that sin can be named without fear, where he can truly petition God for forgiveness. We get a sense that what is deepest in God's person is rising to match and encompass and overwhelm what is deepest in David's, David's unfaithfulness. The sin has been from David's youth, yes, but God's steadfast love has been from of old. That is to say, long before David and his sin existed. This dynamic then intensifies in the lead up to the central confession in verse 11 as David invokes the very name of God, the most fundamental expression of Yahweh's steadfast love, verses 10 and 11 together. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In these verses, David is not simply pulling attributes out of a hat, love and faithfulness, attributes convenient for his guilty state. He is rather making a direct appeal to who God has revealed himself to be. The pairing of steadfast love and faithfulness here is a direct quotation from Exodus 34. In this central Old Testament revelation of God's person, the Lord speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai proclaims his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As David climbs the mountain toward standing in the light, exposing his sin, it is, the, it is as though he is speaking the name of the Lord to keep his fear at bay. So many others would be untrustworthy with my deepest confession, but not this one, the Lord of hosts, who is merciful and gracious, this one will be slow to anger and in response to my confession will overflow with steadfast love and faithfulness. David trusted this one with what was most deeply true about his brokenness. Do you trust him as well? If David saw much of the Lord's character and had much to trust in, we who stand in the light of the Christ have seen more and have more reason to trust. The one who invites your confession, who longs for you to step into the light, to be free of the weight you carry, is the one who knew your sin in its totality and went to the cross with love in his heart. He suffered so that you could live. He gave his dying breath so that you could breathe again. He stretched out his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that you might know his saving embrace. And nothing, not what you did yesterday or last month 
last year or last decade can change this posture of affection toward you. You are his beloved child. He wants you to enter the light, to be seen in your sin, to admit it to him and to yourself and to know his embrace. Will you trust this one? Will you come out of hiding to the light of his love? Will you lay your sin bare to him? He can take it. He will not shrink back. He will quiet the voice of self-justification and the voice of self-condemnation. He will overflow with steadfast love and faithfulness toward you. He has forgiven you. Church family, this is the good news. You do not need to hide anymore. If we do continue to play the hiding game in light of such a great love, we only rob ourselves of knowing this great and powerful affection personally. Yes, your sin is great, but your Savior's love is greater. He longs to give himself to you fully if you will only step into the light. So we allow our sin to be known. We know the love of God. And now we are ready to take up the posture of a student. There's a specific name for this posture cited in Psalm 25. It is the result of seeing our great sin met by the greatness of God's love. It is the fear of the Lord. We are now descending the other side of the mountain following David's central confession and see the completion of the posture we need to truly receive the Lord as our teacher. Our great sin is met by great love, and this encounter leaves reverence, awe, fear in its wake. Consider verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. It's clear that without this fear, we're incapable of truly benefiting from the Lord's instruction. Of course, this is not fear as in being terrorized. It is rather reverence, awe, humble wonder in the face of a majestic, holy judge who looks upon us with a fierce, strong benevolence and asks us to surrender the whole of our lives. Perhaps it feels something like swimming in the open ocean with no land in sight. Suddenly a massive creature is swimming beneath you. And then a blue whale surfaces within arm's reach. You are not in terror because you know it does not want to eat you, but you are utterly stilled in the face of its power, its majestic strength. Perhaps we would be close to an understanding of the fear of the Lord if that experience could be mixed with the knowledge of powerful affection and utter goodwill toward you. This is the posture of fear that we are invited to know and take up under our rabbi, Jesus. This posture destroys our lukewarm, casual flippancy and replaces it instead with awe, reverence, respect, and obedience. The decisive transition into this posture occurs as we experience our sin met by his love. This is the surfacing of the whale, the moment of wonder. 
Taking up the posture of awe and reverence in the psalm is accompanied by a great promise. We will know the friendship of the Lord. And we will know true flourishing as human beings, the fruit of his instruction put into practice. Verses 13 to 14. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. As we learn to fear him, he will lead us in the paths of life. We will know the friendship, the companionship, the counsel of the Lord of steadfast love. The picture in this psalm is complete and beautiful. As we bring our sin into the light, it is met there by the deep love and faithfulness of God. This encounter produces awe, respect, and honor, the fear of the Lord that is necessary for us to fruitfully sit under his instruction and find true flourishing. The only remaining question is how will we live into these realities during this Lenten season? I'd like to suggest three quick ideas. First, give yourself the time and space. Our self-deception and hiding are fueled by the breakneck pace of our lives. The sense that there is no time to stop and think, no time to sit in his presence. This is one of the great gifts of our fasting. Maybe you've given up something that used to take a lot of time in your life, social media, TV, podcasts. Spend that time in prayer. Ask God to show you the depth of your sin. Do not fear if he leads you to opening something you'd rather not look at. Perhaps something recent, perhaps something you've been carrying for a long time. He is the God of freedom. He wants to take it from you. He wants to heal you. You don't need to carry it any longer. Confess it to yourself, confess it to him. Second, if God is showing you something that he wants to free you of, a weight of sin you carry, be bold to confess it to someone else. Perhaps a friend in this community, perhaps to a member of our pastoral team. I recognize that this might be scary or a new idea to some of you, but scripture teaches that bringing our sin into the light in a safe and discerning way is one of the powerful ways that God works in our lives. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If someone should choose to confess sin to you in this season, let me encourage you to speak the words of the gospel over that person without reservation. Allow them to know their deep belovedness. Let them know of what Jesus has endured to call them his own. Pray for them. Third and finally, practice the presence of the Spirit. Allow yourself to be led in real time. Practice a posture of reverence throughout your day, not only when it's convenient for you or on your own terms, asking God to show you the places where you can practice overcoming anger, covetousness, lust, greed, impatience. As the opportunity arises, pray for strength and courage to meet the opportunity. If you fail, run to the grace of your loving Father. If you triumph, thank God for giving you strength. Church family, my prayer is that we would keep this Lent well, that we would come out of hiding to ourselves, to one another, and to God that we would know the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and that we would walk in humble reverence and newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you needy. We do not have the strength or the resources within us to overcome the sins and the sin problem that is ours, our rebellion. Lord, we pray that you would come by your spirit in this season and would help us. Lord, give us the strength to come into the light and to know newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.